has it been 10 years of Bitcoin or 11 for me? at this point? Yeah, I think it's been 12. I think it was just the year after my son was born I got into it. 12 years of Bitcoin and you still can put on pants and go outside and talk to normal people. I think that's a win. At least on show days. On the other days, I don't necessarily know if I do. I think it's selectively blocking things out. Like if you were to ask me how much money I lost on Mt. Gox, I actually couldn't remember. Right. I just don't even want to, right? And I've thought every now and then I've thought, you know, you could probably dig through your email and you could probably figure it out. Oh, you don't want to do that. I don't. Even if maybe they owe me a little bit of something, I don't think I want to know because I'd never get back what I put in. Well, you want to get into a good place and then deal with that maybe yeah. in the future. I just prefer not to, you know what, just let it go because I'll never get the Bitcoin back that was stolen from me from one of these online wallets I tried really early on. It, it was, you know, near 60 Bitcoin that were taken. I saw a question in the Matrix chat. Someone was talking about how they just don't feel comfortable using a mobile wallet. And I laughed because I'd been cleaning up mobile wallets, as in wallets on old phones where there was no seed anymore. And I briefly started sweating, realizing what was in there. <laughs> And nearly got lost. Oh, man. Really? Jeez. Yeah, you're right. I should go through and check mine because I've thrown a few sats in there over the years trying different ones out. I've been trying out uh, the Mun wallet, Moon wallet, M-U-U-N wallet. I tried the wallet of Satoshi briefly. These are custodial lightning wallets. Here's what I, and I'm not necessarily endorsing a wallet because I feel like you got to try it for a while. You got to live through multiple updates, maybe even live through a disaster moment where you're recovering. But Mun or Moon, M-U-U-N, it must be Moon. I think the joke is that it's the worst name in Bitcoin. It has one really cool feature is it lets you send and receive sats on Lightning and on-chain interchangeably. It doesn't care. The Bitcoin Beach wallet does the same thing. It makes it so much simpler for new users. I was trying to walk through using RoboSats with somebody and I just had them get this so they don't have to even worry about it. Just send and receive in one wallet. You know, maybe you don't keep all of your Bitcoin in there, <laughs> but you know, maybe you're trying to get a handful of sats off of RoboSats to, to boost. I think it could be a, a good wallet. I, I don't, I'm going to play around there for a little while. It's a custodial wallet, so no one should keep a significant amount of funds on there because it could just disappear if Moon gets hit with a government order or a hack or something like that. And uh, since we're together, I just wanted to show you, look at the security screen they have in there, which I think is just really nice to kind of demonstrate to users where they're at with their like backups and their security for the wallet. I think that's a nice touch just in a, from a UI standpoint. Great. And so the way this works is first level is they send a backup to your email. Second level is they create an alternative backup with a code. Third level is an emergency kit, which probably includes seed words that can then be backed up into it or revived in another wallet, not Moon. And they do it in a way that I think even a, a first timer could understand the way they display that. See, there's a lot there. There's so many I've tried over the years. It doesn't do what I'd love to really make that perfect would be background coin join. Then I'm all in. Well, background coin join is what Wasabi 2.0 tries to do. And I'm not sure it even works because you know about your UTXOs. You know which UTXOs you want to link and you want to not link. And Wasabi tries to abstract this away from the user and just have a coin join robot. Well, there's a problem here because one, coin join requires fees. And if you have a centralized coordinator model like Wasabi or Samurai, that coordinator needs to receive fees both to fund its operations but also as an anti-Sybil attack. A Sybil attack is based on, I think, a movie about a person named Sybil who had multiple personality disorder. And so a Sybil attack is when maybe the coin join round is 50 participants and I'm 49 of the participants. So I know who the other one participant is because I can track my UTXOs. Now, if we're doing coin join in the background and you're offering it as the coordinator, suddenly you have an incentive to charge me for coin joins. If you create the software that kind of decides what's being coin joined, there's a conflict of interest in my view. Because even if you say, oh, it's not that much money, it's just an anti 
anti-Sybil feature, yada, yada, yada. If I'm paying you money, you have an incentive to take that money. So I really think that the automated coin join is problematic. I much prefer the join market strategy, which is you put your funds in a join market wallet. You may or may not post a bond that's called a fidelity bond that kind of speaks to fidelity, your goodness, your trueness. Because you essentially have some funds locked up? The fidelity bond adds a trust rating to your funds. The way it works is if you post a fidelity bond, you're very unlikely to be a Sybil attacker because for a Sybil attacker to get the same trust rating as a single person with a fidelity bond, they'd have to post exponentially more collateral. And so it becomes very expensive to Sybil attack the join market coin join pool. And in join market, when you put funds into this state where you can coin join, you're actually a maker. You're making the coin join liquidity. And then takers, people who want coin join right now, they come in and they pay you a little bit to coin join with you. So they know who they've coin joined with, but you are only one of their coin join partners. So I think that that model is definitionally more decentralized than the samurai and wasabi models. And it kind of solves the financial incentive of the coin join coordinator problem because even if the coin join fee is just a nominal fee, well, it can't be too nominal because it has to disincentivize Sybil attacks. Right. And they have infrastructure to pay for. It's expensive keeping things online all the time and highly available and yeah, highly performant. And I mean, state level attacks are coming for coin join. That was what the whole Tornado Cash OFAC sanction is about. I like the ease of use, but I think the other vulnerability they have is they are inherently more centralized because they're going to just, the coordinators are going to be built into the app and that also is going to make them discoverable by the authorities. I have a really sweet setup that I'll I'll run past you maybe later in the show when we get to the boots. And speaking of show, this is the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on Friday, September 2nd, 2022. I'm your Bitcoin Dad and I'm here as always with me, Chris. Hey, hey. I like to add the delay back in every now and then. You know, it's like we're remote even when you're I know. I felt like I was on the other side of the world for a moment. (laughs) I fell asleep for a second. But your eyes were wide open. It was actually kind of creepy. It's an old podcaster trick. Can you believe we're potting into September? September now. We're just potting right along and it's September. I just can't even with that. One of our last few episodes where I'll be in studio before I hit the road for a bit. Well, let's get right into today's episode. We're going to be discussing Iran formulating crypto import rules, Zoltan Pozar's latest letter, War and Industrial Policy, the Kansas City Fed breaks the news to modern monetary theory fans that it's not going to work. In tokenomics, we have Coinmetrics new report on the Ethereum POS transition and our juicy section is going to be Bitcoin education with an article by Jameson Lopp about Bitcoin core commit history and what a difficult project Bitcoin is to contribute to. And then a mammoth piece from Lynn Alden about the Lightning Network. And as a warm up to explaining what the Lightning Network is, she explains why Bitcoin, why not other coins and where the fiat system is going and then gets into the Lightning Network. Then we'll round it out with some feedback. It's a full show, as they say today. Let's hop in with news from Iran. There was a Reuters report about Iran imported $10 million of stuff and they paid with crypto. Oh my God. And I didn't even say what crypto, which is really annoying, right? And I think we thought it was either. I think we might have had a few guesses, but it was vague, but it seems like this is maybe the next shoe to drop. They've clarified that the crypto they're talking about is Bitcoin. And what's interesting is that Iran is passing a framework 
for legally importing using Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Well, why do they need this? In the U.S., you don't need this because in the U.S., there are generally very few import restrictions. And part of that is WTO, World Trade Organization rules. Another part is that the U.S. kind of has to be an open economy as a result of the petrodollar system. But in other countries, especially countries with closed capital accounts like Iran, when you import, you actually kind of have to register your payment for those goods with the government because they're trying to maintain a balance between money going out of the country and money coming into the country. So for Iran, they need a framework so that when you receive goods from abroad and then the customs union or whatever the government agency that controls this cross-border flow comes to you and says, hey, you're receiving goods, but you didn't register an external payment. What's going on? And then you say, oh, well, I paid with cryptocurrency. And they're like, jail. So you need to have uh, some understanding in a system like that. At least that's my understanding of how it works. I was surprised when we heard about importing goods with cryptocurrency. And now I'm surprised to hear this. They've been all over the, the map. They banned Bitcoin mining. They- and they, they also banned the trading of cryptocurrencies mined outside the country in that same month. And then that ban was lifted like a few months later. And then it was reimposed in December of the same year. And they've just been on and off with the cryptocurrency stuff. But it seems like they, I guess, recognize the utility based on the sanctions that have sort of put them in a tough spot. They have no other option. My sense is that they've been waiting for sanctions to be lifted because it's frankly insane to be sanctioning such a large economy that's also an energy producer, especially in a period of high energy prices. But since rational policy does not seem to be prevailing and they remain heavily sanctioned by the US, I think they're probably being driven to other options because my understanding is that Iran, in spite of all of its challenges, has a very interesting and perhaps even dynamic internal economy. I recall hearing that Iran has a very active domestic stock market with many local companies. And in a way, the lack of international corporate penetration into Iran has helped local businesses develop. Obviously, they're under a lot of restrictions and they're operating in an unideal environment, but it still seems sort of interesting from a domestic economic economic perspective. I imagine that Iran desperately needs ways to financially interact with the outside world. And like we said previously, you generally try everything and then you come to Bitcoin. And that's what it almost seems like is going on here. So they're working on this Bitcoin payment framework to make it possible for an importer to, to sell their goods to people in Iran with Bitcoin. Is that the end result of what's changing here? I believe that's the case. That seems big. And there's a specific carve out for buying cars with Bitcoin and auto parts, cars. This is generally one of the largest import categories in almost all economies. There's a surprising statistic, at least in the past 10 years, the number one import to the United States was cars and related parts. And the number one export was cars and related parts. That actually does not surprise me. I can't help but look inwardly at this news and think, what does it mean when regimes that are hostile towards the U.S. or the U.S. is hostile towards are some of the first to begin embracing these technologies? And what frictions is that going to create internally? And then secondarily, as a U.S. citizen, I'm a little alarmed that the technology that I think will bring a new level of sovereignty and control and justice to the holders and to the people as it gets adopted against the best interests of the overall national strategy of my country. You see what I'm saying there? It's becoming a tool of America's enemies, and that's not going to be good for the narrative here in the homeland. And also, it would appear that America is a bit of a barrier to people having self-sovereign hard money. I don't think that's a 
surprising because the United States is sort of the administrator of the petrodollar system today, this global system where most global energy is priced in dollars, which creates demand for U.S. dollars, which the U.S. government can use this demand to run very large government deficits. And the world sort of has to purchase this U.S. government debt because this U.S. government debt is the short-term liquidity on central bank and corporate balance sheets that they hold as they wait to need dollars to settle energy transactions or other trade transactions. So inevitably, Bitcoin was going to come in conflict with this legacy system. It makes sense that the first people or entities to try to use Bitcoin to get around U.S. financial blocks will be on the margin. Remember, the first major Bitcoin usage was the Silk Road, which is an online drug marketplace. At that time, I don't even think marijuana was legal in any U.S. states when the Silk Road was active. And even today, where marijuana has been legalized in many U.S. states, you can't buy it with a credit card. You have to use cash. So the next adopter of Bitcoin was WikiLeaks. And just to remind everybody, the big crime of WikiLeaks was that they revealed internal U.S. government documentation that proved that U.S. soldiers and mercenaries in Iraq had committed war crimes and murdered Iraqi people, whole families, in fact. And so the U.S. government didn't like that and has destroyed Julian Assange in response. But they first cut off WikiLeaks from all financial support and they used Bitcoin when they had no other options. Iran is a little bit similar in the sense that they have very few options for receiving funds. And the U.S. is going after all of their foreign assets via OFAC sanctions and other means. So it's not surprising that they would turn to Bitcoin because as WikiLeaks has demonstrated, as the Silk Road has demonstrated, Bitcoin is unstoppable. Well, hopefully the appetite for money and greed, hopefully that is what helps us with adoption here in the state. Because I just look at this and I think it'd be pretty easy for someone like Elizabeth Warren to spin a tale about Iran and other countries adopting Bitcoin and then just saying, look, it's this horrible energy monster. Look, it's being used by our enemies that want to hurt us and do us harm. Bitcoin is enabling terrorism. Iran is a terrorist state. That rhetoric is feels like it's just, it's now an option that she can pull from. A hundred percent. But if it wasn't terrorism, it would have been something else because, frankly, I don't understand Elizabeth Warren's game plan. She was anti-bank, but now she wants us all to use bank money. Explain that. I know the logic is just not there. It's not internally consistent there, Liz. You're right about that. Well, good for them. You know, I, I think this is actually a fascinating move for Bitcoin in the history of Bitcoin to have Iran be creating this legal framework like this to start taking goods and sales in Bitcoin. That's massive. And imagine for every transaction, there's now someone else on the other side of that deal who's also getting involved in Bitcoin? It's a network. As you participate in Bitcoin, as you become a node on that network and you start interacting with other nodes, the value of the network, the usefulness of it increases as a nonlinear function. So one large energy economy onboarding to Bitcoin, it's a potentially huge step in terms of adoption. Talking about Iran sort of touches on this geopolitical aspect of money and the macro economy, which leads nicely into Zoltan Pozar's latest piece, War and Industrial Policy. I think everyone should read this because it's very readable, very meme lots of fun, exciting, slightly doom-porny predictions. And essentially what Zoltan is saying is that the globalized world was built out of two things, Chimerica, the Chinese America entity, which was 
U.S. uses dollars to buy cheap Chinese goods. Cheap Chinese goods enable U.S. stagnating wages to buy more、mm-hmm. stuff in real terms.、Yep. Keeps prices down too. U.S. workers can survive on non-rising wages if you can buy more stuff with these dollars. And China dutifully invests their trade surplus into U.S. Treasuries. This was what was happening back in 2007, 2008. And at the same time, you have Russia providing cheap energy to Germany and that those areas, and so they're able to run production at you know off of cheap energy. And Zoltan calls that Eurusia. <laughs> I was wondering if you were going to give that a shot. Eurusia. I wasn't. <laughs> And so Eurusia is this idea of turning cheap Russian energy into fancy German exports. Germany runs a current account surplus, a trade surplus, and it's this trade surplus that essentially makes the European Union solvent because the European Union can only hold together if Germany subsidizes all the pigs—Portugal, Italy, Greece, Spain, these Southern European countries that don't have energy, they don't have manufacturing, they don't seem to have much other than good weather and tasty food and. And great beaches, yeah, tourism, right, which is no way to run an economy, and not doing great the last couple of years. I wonder why. Tempted to cough into the mic. Something going around,、yeah. I think. <laughs> And Zoltan posits that these two economic engines of globalization, Eurusia and Chimerica, have divorced. They've broken up, and this essentially ends globalization, and it results in a new partnership, which is Chirusia. Yeah, you got you got China and Russia working together, and then the EU kind of needs to use the U.S. as a new source of liquid natural gas to subsidize their economy. Well, that should be nice and cheap, since we're just a quick short drive away. Not at all. It's clearly very complicated and expensive to liquefy natural gas and ship it across an ocean.、And、there are a lot of challenges there, it seems. But the gist of this piece is that globalization really is over, and this means that the U.S. and Europe they're going to need to reshore a lot of industries, move in a sort of anti-globalization direction, and this is going to stoke inflation, result in higher prices, and frankly, it may also result in financial repression. The sort of yield curve control that Japan has been engaging in,、uh, and this might be necessitated by the fact that if you have to make massive domestic investment, and that means borrowing billions of dollars, you might not want to borrow at a super high interest rate. So, hey, why don't we just control the yield curve? And so, this is an essay about the global economy becoming more fractured, prices becoming more fractured across countries. And so, in the past, if wheat was expensive in Europe, it was expensive. In the U.S., but we might be moving into a more fractured world where prices completely diverge between economies because we just don't have these linkages anymore as globalization sort of moves in the opposite direction. That all makes sense, and I've been wondering about this since the beginning of the Ukraine war. If we would see a return of manufacturing to a degree to the U.S. and how that would impact prices, as it would undoubtedly require billions of dollars of investment, and then of course higher wages, so higher sustained prices to run it, not to mention higher taxes, higher costs to just operate a business in the United. States versus China, etc. However, I'm just going to play the role of the cynic for this. I don't really see. I mean, and I mean this in absolute 100% terms. I don't see any political will from anyone who's in any position of leadership right now to engage in any kind of re-domestication of things. Like it just seems like everyone who is in power today and all of their proteges have forever existed in this global interconnected system, and it's the only way they see the world. I was just listening to some European leadership this morning.、Uh, They're doing a speech, and none of.
of this is on their radar. This is not how they see the world at all. That's a good point. I think that Zoltan assumes rational political policy. He talks about industrial policy. The U.S. does not have industrial policy. And Germany, which is currently in the midst of an energy crisis, still is planning to close all of its nuclear reactors on some timeline, which seems, frankly, pretty insane. So maybe they don't have a rational industrial policy either. On the flip side, in the U.S., there has been this CHIPS Act which is supposed to help fund the reshoring of semiconductor manufacturing in the United States. I think that that speaks to some interest maybe in reshoring and industrial policy. At the same time, I think it's very difficult to build out complicated infrastructure. Chip fabs are actually in many ways the most advanced and complicated factories in the world. I've personally been in several lower grade chip fabs or clean rooms and even a class 10,000 clean room, which ironically 10,000 is a low grade clean room where as class 1,000 or 100 or 10 is a high grade clean room. These are very complicated and difficult structures to both build and maintain. And China has actually been attempting to onshore semiconductor manufacturing to the Chinese mainland for over a decade now. And that fund has actually been mostly embezzled. So there are many challenges to using centralized government policy to incentivize these transformations. At the same time, the fact that we have the CHIPS Act speaks to some appetite for American industrial policy, I think. I agree. But I also think it reveals the scope of the issue. So like this CHIPS Act. It's 60 billion, right? 60 billion dollars around there. There's one side effect that's already happened is manufacturers are delaying proceeding on their plants until this money is secured. So it's 60 billion for all industries. When you look at the kind of money, like you touched on, how expensive it is to do this, TSMC, the leader in this area, just TSMC alone is going to invest 100 billion just in 2023 for their own manufacturing. So we're doing 60 billion for all industries. For how long? I don't know. And TSMC, the largest, is spending a hundred billion just on themselves in one year. Oh, it's a drop in the bucket. I think I've heard estimates that a serious fab like TSMC costs around a trillion dollars to create. And so 60 billion isn't even 1%. I mean, it's nothing. I mean, in order to make this work, they're almost going to have to kick them out money on a yearly basis. And also it's impossible to build this fab in the next 10 years because we don't have the workforce that can operate it. It's a long iterative process to sort of train up the engineers, create the educational programs for for the engineers and designers and, and scientists needed to run a facility like this. And frankly, it doesn't seem like a good long-term plan to be building this in Arizona, because I think the goal was to foster chip development in Arizona, which currently is suffering one of the worst water crises of the past hundred years. Well, guess what? Semiconductor manufacturing requires huge amounts of water. This has been a big problem in Taiwan, getting sufficient water for TSMC. And Taiwan is basically a tropical climate with much more rainfall than Arizona, for sure. And we're not even beginning to address these systemic issues like the water supply issue, like the staffing issues. It's, and I hate to say this because I, do, I don't like being a doom and gloom person, but it seems like there, it's going to require a lot of motivation to get this done. And I think the only way you get there is by some pain. I was about to say pain. And I think another pushback is these prognostications are completely outside of Zoltan's wheelhouse. He's a financial market 
plumbing and liquidity expert. So he got famous talking about where interest rates were going because he could describe how financial money moves through the economy. This is geopolitics. I'm not 100% sure why he's the authority to be talking on this. He's clearly read a lot on the subject, but this is not what made him famous. So he might be taking a big swing here because he's sort of gotten on everybody's radar. That's definitely a thing. But I have heard this general sentiment repeated from various outlets that, oh, yeah, it's coming now. We're going to we're going to bring industry back. You know, globalization is over. Um, I just don't know about that. <laughs> I just I think it should be. But then the smart thing, smart play would have been never to have shipped some of that stuff overseas to begin with. And the same people that were involved in making those decisions still around today. Well, and also temporarily, it might make sense to reshore manufacturing domestically, whether you're in the United States or whether you're in Europe, because right now China is locking down and disrupting their own ability to produce cheap exports with their zero COVID policy. But when that policy changes, I think it is kind of starting to reverse because they've just done special exemptions for all of the iPhone 14 manufacturing. They've got a special clearance to start manufacturing components for Apple again. Right. So China has all this export infrastructure. And maybe this is another pushback to Zoltan. I think that the Russia doesn't quite make sense because if Russia is selling China a lot of energy and China is using that energy to produce cheap tchotchkes, Russia only has a population of 143 million and it's relatively poor. Russia has sort of the economic size of Italy, which is a non-entity in Europe. Well, what does that mean? It means that Russia basically has two things happening, energy production and I guess they produce some military hardware. They don't really have a huge amount of domestic consumption because they're authoritarian politics crushes their middle class every 10 years. First, the middle class got crushed in the Crimean War, and now it's getting crushed in the Ukrainian War. So they don't have the ability to buy Chinese exports to a large degree. China still needs foreign markets like the United States, like Europe. I wonder how we're going to onshore if periodically you get hit with a tidal wave of cheap Chinese goods that kind of screws up your onshoring pricing. Yeah, and I don't think China would want to let that completely slip away from their grasp. It's valuable for them to be that manufacturing center. And I could see with global relations changing, it becomes less of a center and it just becomes one of the participants. But I can't imagine they're going to want all of that to just drain away from their economy. And honestly, I don't see how it could, because I think, as I've mentioned before, if you go to China, you will see cities full of factories building the most obscure things. There's a place in China that produces 90 percent of the world's Christmas tree lights. There's a small city near Shanghai that produces a huge amount of the world polyester fabric. There are all these little things in China that produce a large fraction of the world's supply of something. Yeah, little widgets or whatever. It's almost impossible to compete with that scale. So it's hard to imagine that being cut off from the global supply chain. And I think this speaks to the complication of the next 10 years, because I think we'll experience deflationary shocks where supply chains are disrupted. We can't access the Chinese goods. Prices spike. We start to build out domestic supply and then suddenly supply chains relax again. We get this flood of cheap stuff. And so we have these deflationary and inflationary impulses. And I think this speaks to Lynn Alden's description of how these crises play out. You don't have inflation up in a straight line. You have these inflationary shocks, deflationary shocks, and everything's very volatile through the process. Yeah. It's not like if we, if the inflation numbers are going down today, it doesn't mean they're going to stay down. It's part of that roller coaster we're going to be experiencing as all this stuff shakes out and is energy prices fluctuate, supply chain fluctuates, and global politics. Right. And even 
even as inflation slows, prices will never go down. And that is sort of the point of our next piece, which is courtesy of the Kansas City Fed, a new entrant onto our podcast. Isn't this fun that these smaller, like, state-based feds keep dropping truth bombs? Meanwhile, like... <laughs> the New York Fed is tur- turning up the gas on the gas lights. <laughs> And it's like, oh, okay, so not all of them have lost it. No, but they're doing some serious research. And the title of this paper is Inflation as a Fiscal Limit. They use an econometric model to justify their claims. And I can't really dissect this model. Personally, I think economic modeling is sort of a waste of time, but it's an interesting exercise. The conclusion is that if you want low and stable price inflation, you need a fiscal framework that stabilizes government debt. What does that mean? It means that if your government spending is out of control and you're generating budget deficits that require issuing new government debt, this is actually inflationary, to which I think we would all reply, no, duh. Of course, if the government is borrowing money and buying stuff with it. They're buying real goods with borrowed money. They're going to create price pressure with those purchases. Well, this seems like a very common sense conclusion, but this was conveniently forgotten by the modern monetary theory school of monetary economics. The MMTers had this idea that, you know, we haven't had a lot of inflation since 2008, and probably it's because everything's changed now. Inflation will never really be a problem, and we can monetize government deficit deficits by issuing new debt. And if we see inflation, we'll just raise interest rates into that inflationary headwind and that'll suck money out of the economy and it'll control inflation. And I think that this paper would say no, because you'll create a feedback loop where as you run a larger government deficit, you'll create more inflationary policy. And now try getting politicians to raise taxes when you have sort of an inflationary recession on your hands. Well, I mean, I think you could argue, and I don't want this to be a political statement, but just looking at the financials of it, the latest estimate I have seen, if most of the student debt participants take advantage of the loan relief program, could cost the U.S. economy as much as a trillion dollars. Wait, how would it cost the economy a trillion dollars? The amount out of debt that may end up getting paid off could be around a trillion dollars of relief like that. Because, you know, somebody gets that money, right? Like, it's not like the debt just disappears. The schools are going to get paid. They're going to get a check from the government. Well, the schools have already gotten the check from the government. True. I guess it's the, it's the lender that gets the check then, right? So I'm not clear on who's holding these debt obligations. There's two kinds, too, as well, which also make complicated. My understanding was that the Treasury Department held this debt. And so it would just mean that the U.S. government would reduce the asset side of their balance sheet because they no longer have the asset of all the student debt. And then students or debtors, student debtors would then not have to make payments. And then they could take these payments and buy more goods and services, which theoretically might cause inflationary. So there could be that angle to it, I think, which would be an inflationary action right now, which seems like a bad move. But I'm still not clear on. So if debt exists because it was debt that was issued by the federal government, it just disappears and nobody gets paid back. Like there's no lender that's getting paid back here. The lender is the federal government. Right. But they're not they're not getting paid back. I mean, I know this is all side deviation, but I because somebody must be getting paid back, right? You could cancel a debt through a couple different mechanisms, right? So if you're the treasury and you have a trillion dollars of student debt, you could say, okay, students, I'm just going to cancel this. I'm going to go over to my treasury balance sheet. I'm going to draw a red line through this trillion dollars. And now you don't owe it to me. But is it the treasury that holds that debt or isn't it a bank that holds that? Aren't they making payments to a bank? Well, I think that the payments flow through loan servicers. So these servicing companies might be upset because, oh, we don't get to service these loans 
loans or anything. So I see. the traditional financial system is all about these intermediaries that facilitate payments. And that's why it's so fragile and expensive and slow and prone to sanctions and whatnot. Another way to do it would be to say, hey, Federal Reserve, do you mind uh, creating a trillion dollars and paying this trillion dollars to the Treasury and then the Treasury will write off this debt? And so that would basically mean that the Federal Reserve has a deficit of a trillion dollars. But I'm pretty sure that's not what happened, because if that happened, people would be freaking out and they'd be saying, oh, my God, the Fed is printing money. Inflation is here. So I think it was much more likely that the holder of this debt just cancels it, which would mean for a regular entity, your balance sheet would take a big hit. And your shareholders wouldn't like it. But if it's a government, who cares? And from an inflationary standpoint, the only real inflationary result would be that these people have more purchasing power right now. Instead of having to allocate 10 or 20 or 30 percent of their budget to debt payments, now they can buy more food, go out to a bar, start to save up for a down payment on a house, something like that. Interesting. It's very confusing to me. So that does help clear it up. I look at that and I think that's got to be inflationary, but perhaps it's not. I don't know. I mean, frankly, I'm not too concerned about it. There have been these debt cancellation programs over the past five years. The Trump administration issued a lot of grants and sort of fiscal subsidies to American farmers. People didn't seem to freak out too much about that. I don't understand why canceling student debt is more controversial. Could it also, I think, and I think I've probably heard this mentioned, one one argument I've heard brought up is it doesn't necessarily incentivize the schools to stop raising the price. Well, that's a separate issue. But that could be somewhat inflationary in itself, I suppose, is if they could just keep raising it in the thoughts that every, you know, 10, 20 years, we'll just write off some of the debt. So who cares if they raise the Well, I mean, this is the problem with these fiscal transfers. It creates malincentives. So this gets into the problem with modern monetary theory idea that you'll raise taxes to suck money out of the economy when there's inflation. Now that everybody knows that the government can provide helicopter money checks when things get bad, if you're a politician and things get bad, the question is, why are you not providing helicopter money? I am in crisis. I need help right now. So is this politician going to turn around and say, listen, voter who is distressed and ready to vote for an opponent who will promise them a bailout. We can't do this because this bailout has a chance of degrading our economic system to the point where it might collapse. Well, if I'm about to get kicked out of my house, do I really care? Of course not. Well, and is, isn't there sort of some study that shows like when the empire is collapsing too, everybody wants their check, get some money out of the system while you can. It feels like when we're in a decline and everybody's just sort of their mentality has shifted after all these years and everybody's finally just getting checks. When I was a kid, people were like, how are we paying for that? That's not that nobody even asks that anymore, right? (laughs) Nobody's even answering or asking those questions anymore. It's just, I want my check. Right. And that's human nature. I want my check. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to get a bailout. And I'm sure we'd YOLO some of that into Bitcoin because, (laughs) I mean, honestly, I would be very concerned about these trends if Bitcoin didn't exist because I'd be saying, what's going to happen to the dollar long term? What's going to happen to interest rates? How am I going to have my retirement? If I didn't have the option to opt out of this system of perverse incentives, I'd really be sweating bullets right now. Yeah. If my option for my old age was just a 401k full of tech stocks and some blue chips, I'd really be worried. Yeah. I I think I'd be in a dark place. That is a scary thought. Yeah. I wonder how people who don't know about Bitcoin are are dealing with this. Maybe they're not following it, but we get these beacons of reality checks. Like that's what this paper is to me that you found here. It's a real institution. It seems to be speaking to the reality of the situation. Like when Jerome Powell was in front of Congress about three months ago, he was asked directly, does the money supply affect inflation? Is the amount of money in the system ultimately affect inflation? And his answer was no. Well, his colleagues at the Kansas City Fed would beg to differ. And I quote, trend inflation is fully controlled by the monetary authority only when public debt can be successfully stabilized by credible future fiscal plans. As 
reason, as long as the federal government has an under control budget deficit and everyone has confidence that the federal government is going to control their spending, will monetary policy be effective? When the fiscal authority is not perceived as fully responsible for covering the existing fiscal imbalances, i.e. running a persistent deficit forever like we are currently in the United States and in Europe and everywhere in the world, basically, the private sector expects that inflation will rise to ensure sustainability of national debt. There you have it. You can't really control people's expectations through jawboning and these mind games that the Fed is playing because rational market actors, they simply look at the government budget deficit and they say, how are you going to finance that in two, three, 10 years? And the answer is you're going to have to issue more debt. Well, this implies that interest rates will be higher. And so you can talk all you want, but that speaks for itself. Yeah. Monetary policy can't defy reality is sort of the point of this paper. I'm surprised they published it, frankly. Yeah, I know. It's a very dissenting opinion from what, you know, those in the main Fed actually think. I find this to be absolutely fascinating because they also invoke like the situation in the 70s and in the 80s and kind of walk through, you know, how that was restored. But the main point here is it's never going to work as long as those who are promising to write checks for stuff are, are just continuing on. Like you can have a policy at the Fed, but if the federal government isn't in sync with that, if you don't have some sort of fiscal responsibility, then the people won't ever believe it. They'll never have buy-in on a larger sense. It's not going to work. And before you ask, I did do a search through the paper for Bitcoin or BTC. There was no reference, but I was half expecting one. That's the next step, right? But it's going to take them a while. I think they have to understand there's just a lot more. They, I, like they need to need it. They need to need it more. And we're getting there. I hate to sound like a broken record, but I think we're pretty early to all this stuff. Yeah. Although the timing seems to be getting closer and closer. And speaking of other things getting closer, that Ethereum proof of stake merge appears to be happening on September 16th. Yay. I'm sorry to keep mentioning this. However, Ethereum is, in my view, really the only only credible alternative to Bitcoin if for an outsider. Okay. All right. I'm not saying it's a credible alternative. But <laughs> I, was giving, I gave him a shocked look like, yeah. I mean, what? How many Ethereum are there? <laughs> Nobody knows. knows. Nobody knows. It's very complicated. <laughs> But if you go to a fancy financial company where people are wearing suits to the office and you sit down and you say crypto, they'll say Ethereum. Yeah. There's some mind share there and it's kind of important. Coinmetrics is a data provider that monitors multiple blockchains, including Ethereum. And they have released a report about the Ethereum merge that we've linked to. I think you have to put in your email to get the report, but I think you can put in anything because they immediately link to it. They don't email you the link. I think it's an interesting read if you want to see uh, like a high level view of the mechanics of the merge. And essentially, the way that they think about it is that their test proof of stake chain, which they call the beacon chain, is their quote unquote consensus layer. And the proof of work chain, you know, that actually works is their execution layer. And then the merge is basically somehow merging this proof of stake consensus layer with the transactions that are being executed on the proof of work layer. That's why they call it the merge. Frankly, I mean, I think it sounds like a pretty ambitious engineering goal. However, one thing I noticed in this report is the assumption, and I think this is a common assumption among financial elites who like Ethereum, that proof of stake is somehow more distributed than proof of work because it's easier to stake as a proof of staker, because all I need is some Ethereum and I can just put it on a computer. And then in the same breath, they explain that actually running a proof of stake node is really hard. And many people have been slashed when their nodes went offline or had latency issues. Slashing is this sort of penalty where your Ethereum gets burned or stolen or something if you do something that the validators don't like. It gets redirected to Vitalik's wallet. 
Oh, exactly. <laughs> and so as a result, the real incentive is to stake in a professional staking provider, which fully centralizes the validation and block production of the network. And like we've mentioned, has already happened before the merge has even completed. It's been centralized into four companies. And Coinmetrics actually did some research to try and figure out how many independent stakers there are. And to the best of their ability, which it's not good data, you know, they're, they're using a lot of chain analysis type inferences. They think around 5% of the stakers are independent. 5%. Oh my God, that's basically that's that could be error. <laughs> it's nothing. So our view remains that this is a huge mistake centralizing Ethereum validation. And frankly, the only benefit to this change is one, they get to tout their ESG credentials because they're not using energy anymore. And two, along with the merge, they're reducing the emission of new Ethereum. So it's a deflationary shock. Once more, every Ethereum upgrade reduces liquidity. They're trying to goose the price higher by sucking new Ethereum issuance out of the market and just force that price higher by basically reducing the denominator of Ethereum. Interesting. You know, I uh, I imagine that this moment, this merge, you know, eventually I expect is that Ethereum is a software platform. It's a blockchain software platform, right? And the ETH token, it's part of that system. And I think when you look at it, they act like a centralized software project. And the biggest, and maybe something we should dig into one day, I don't know if we've ever really got into the difficulty bomb, but the difficulty bomb shows you just how centralized Ethereum has always been and how these people will continue to exert control over Ethereum. It's a pattern. The uh, difficulty bomb, it's a pattern that shows you how, they'll, how they will show their cards when the proof of stake is in production. Right. The difficulty bomb, to my understanding, is this difficulty increase in the Ethereum code. And basically, if you don't hard fork it out every six months or so, the difficulty to find a new block increases exponentially until the network slows to a halt. And this is basically a way for the development team to maintain full control of Ethereum development so that miners need to always be in the habit of upgrading to new software or they'll not be able to get any mining revenue. Which means you can't reject a new feature, even if you think it's against your best interest, because if you don't update, that bomb goes off. It's horrible. And I, it's it makes it a security. I know. It's basically turning on over-the-air automatic updates for your blockchain. It's a terrible idea. And so that's how they can force these large transitions, even though all of these proof-of-work miners who bought mining hardware, they're all going to have to switch to something else. They're all SOL now. Hope they got enough ETH to go stake. Well, maybe we'll finally be able to buy GPUs. GPU prices are coming down. That would be great. That that would be great. I want one of those new fancy GPUs that you can render audio on as well. Yeah. That sounds cool. Oh, I know. That does. I'd love it. Bring it. But they're they're like the size of a small child, right? I mean, they're pretty pretty large. Yeah, I think so. So when you bring all this together, I feel like it's almost a tragedy. It's not quite a tragedy, but it's almost a tragedy. It's such a shame to watch this happen to Ethereum. But, you know, we're learning a lot over here in Bitcoin land from it. Ethereum, it's like your neighbor who they don't touch the hot stove. They rub their face in it. This episode of the Bitcoin Dad Pods brought to you by my show, self-hosted from my company, Jupiter Broadcasting. You know what we do over there? We podcast about running your own infrastructure. Get self-sovereign with your data, your services, your applications. Don't let Google track everything you're doing. Host your own media.
media. You don't need the streaming services knowing what you watch, and why have that data transfer over your internet connection every time you watch something? Self-host will give you all the info, the guides, everything you need, plus a fun community to hang out with. Check it out over at selfhosted.show or search for Self-Hosted in your podcast player. The meat of today's episode is Bitcoin education, and the hors d'oeuvre is Jameson Lopp's latest blog post, Bitcoin Core Contributor Challenges. And what Jameson does is he analyzes the commits in the Bitcoin Core repository, and he actually publishes his shell script that gathers this information. It's uh, quite a clever one. He's using the printf command as well as some clever regex. like to see it. Yeah. Could really learn something <laughs> from this. But he's going through and he's sorting all the stats. Essentially, what he's doing is he's looking at all of the changes in Bitcoin Core. He found over 9 million total rejected added lines of code and over 6 million total rejected deleted lines of code. So these are proposed changes to Bitcoin Core that were rejected. And then he looks at that as a fraction of proposed changes versus accepted changes. And only 3.6 million lines of code changes are accepted, which means that only 19% of proposed changes have been accepted into Bitcoin Core. This is shockingly low. And this speaks to the fact that Bitcoin Core is, I think by metrics like this, the most difficult and professional software project in the world. Yeah, it's hard to really change something unless you've really done your homework, you've really gotten people on board, you've really written something great. The data tells a really interesting story, too, about the journey some of these developers have taken. You can see there's periods of time where they're more involved, they become less involved. And he looks at the top contributor stats. And so this will be a moment to the coding legends, the coding gods who stalk this earth through their keyboards. And number one is Vladimir Vanderlaan with an 88% pull request merge rate. 737 merged pull requests, 104 unmerged pull requests. That guy's an MVP right there. Then you have Peter Willa, 87%. Not bad at all. Marco Falca. I actually don't know Marco. Did he leave earlier? I don't recognize Marco or I don't know who Vlad is either, to tell you the truth. I know some of these names. You don't know Vladimir mm-hmm. Vanderlein? No, I probably should at that he's, he, I think rate. he's one of the earliest uh, developers. Yeah, I'm guessing at that merge rate he must be. I just yeah. not familiar with him. And of course, Matt Corallo is, is up there with a 77% yep. PR merge rate. Yep. But then Lop looks at notable contributors yep. who have stopped contributing after the scaling wars. So Jeff Garzik, mm-hmm. 58% PR merge rate, 88 merge, 63 unmerged. I think Jeff went on to produce some altcoins. Is he a persona non grata in Bitcoin at this point, I think? <laughs> yeah, what's he go altcoin, man? <laughs> then you have Mike Hearn, 57% PR merge rate, eight yeah. merged, six unmerged. Yeah, okay. Now, Mike, he's a former Google guy. I think he's a Google guy who heard about Bitcoin and then came to fix it. That's my kind of read on Mike. Okay. But he actually communicated with Satoshi. So he was a pretty early person mm-hmm. and he left pretty early. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we have Gavin Andreessen, 80% PR merge rate. Never heard of him. Who? Never. 180 merged, 43 unmerged. Now, Gavin <laughs> was, of course, sort of the head of Bitcoin briefly. And Lop digs into Gavin's stats. And what he finds is Gavin's PR merge rate falls over time. So in 2012, he has a 91% merge rate. So he's succeeding 91% of the time in making changes to Bitcoin. But by 2015, his merge rate falls to 59%. And by 2016, 0%. Yeah, he's out of there, basically. 
We mentioned that because I think when there's an opportunity to punch down on Gavin Andreessen, I always take it. I don't know why. Yeah, I think he earned it. I think it's because he said some stuff about Bitcoin scaling that I found really ridiculous. The idea that yeah. you'd be able to send gigabyte blocks over mobile networks to nodes on mobile phones and stuff like that. It just as someone who's worked in te- telecommunications, that's so clearly ridiculous. Yeah, I think that's why a lot of us sort of resents his final days in a lot of ways. He also fell for Craig Wright yeah. in a way that seemed very naive to me. Yeah, he participated in kind of that whole scheme there for a little bit, or at least he added credibility to it. And it feels to me like when you kind of get in the way of Bitcoin, you're kind of getting in the way of human progress. You're getting in the way of something, a tool that's going to be something like giving people electricity or giving them the internet. And so when you kind of derail that, I think you really rile people up. And I think that you just kind of, you're on their S list forever. I think it also speaks to the professionalization of Bitcoin, because in the beginning, anyone who was there, who was interested, who wanted to take the time could contribute to Bitcoin Core. But over time, it became this high quality project, incredibly competitive. And if you wanted to contribute to it, your code had to be beautiful. It had to be thoughtful. You had to understand multiple levels of consensus and other considerations to the Bitcoin game theoretical model. And so a lot of early people weren't good enough, frankly, when Bitcoin finally arrived. And I think this trend shows up in other places because with the failure of a lot of these Bitcoin lending protocols, BlockFi comes to mind, but there are also some that didn't fail like Nexo. And I just want to use this as sort of a metaphor. A lot of people were early to Bitcoin and built big companies and they weren't necessarily smart. They were just really lucky to be there and they put in effort, but it wasn't like they were particularly gifted. And I think BlockFi is sort of an example of that because Zach Prince, the guy behind BlockFi, I think he originally worked in sales at Digital Currency Group and somehow got into a VC meeting and got, you know, huge amounts of funding to start a Bitcoin collateralized lender. And I don't mean to sound dismissive. Obviously I am, but I'd like to not sound that way. But do you think a sales guy is going to run a really great collateralized lending service that has to manage billions of dollars of risk? I don't think so. No. In fact, I think a sales guy is the exact opposite of who I would want running that. And I mentioned Nexo because Nexo is a lender that did not fail. But I actually heard something interesting. Do you know where Nexo comes from? No, no. It comes from some Eastern European payday lending loan shark company. And now they kind of fell into crypto and they're managing billions of dollars of assets. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder how that's going to end. Yeah, you know, one thing, you know, I think people should always look into is where are these companies actually based out of? Nexo advertises on a lot of the uh, crypto podcasts that talk about cryptocurrency, you know, not just Bitcoin. Nexo loves to throw money at them. So I hear Nexo ads quite a bit on some of the other podcasts. And I always think, you know, where are they based out of? Yeah, and I think that if you're shilling a collateralized lending service, you're probably part of the problem, frankly. You know, there's some interesting data that uh, Lop came up with in these uh, in this thing that you have linked in the show notes. We should say these numbers are all linked in the show notes. But he has some takeaways down here. And he says that the evidence is that if you have a rejection rate of under 70%, it's a it's a sign that a contributor will get frustrated and stop contributing to Bitcoin Core. Yeah, people don't like rejection. Yeah, problem is it's a dang hard bar to meet. <laughs> so like, uh, I don't know how you, uh, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta, like with Linux, you gotta expect sometimes the first couple of times you're gonna get rejected. You'll be told what to do to fix it up and then you come back with something better. Easier to contribute to Linux than Bitcoin Core, I think. Seems so. Yeah. And Linux, you just have to worry about Linus yelling at you. He doesn't do that anymore, though. I think he took some anger management or something. Yeah, he dialed it way back. 
Do I miss some of those sick burns? Yeah, it gave us something to talk about. It was fun, you know, have a laugh, but probably for the best. Yeah. I mean, telling someone they shouldn't have been born is probably crossing a line. You might have been right, though. Ouch. We won't have to worry about sick burns in Lynn Alden's latest piece, A Look at the Lightning Network, because Lynn is one of the most polite and nonviolent in her communication I've ever seen on Twitter. Basically, this is an essay that I'm pretty sure very few people have read because it's very long. And I've heard Lynn interviewed since this essay has come out. And interviewers have said, Lynn, who has a new essay about the Lightning Network, and then asked her no questions about it, which suggests that maybe they didn't uh, read it. What Lynn gets into is an explanation of why the Lightning Network, why layered scaling, why Bitcoin, and why not other altcoins. And frankly, it all ties together. She makes the point that a decentralized and permissionless payment network needs its own underlying decentralized self-custodial asset. If you try to build it on top of a permission system, it's just not going to work. And that if you want to incentivize people to use this self-custodial asset for payments, you also need them to want to hold it. It has to be a store of value. And so what's really interesting about this article is I feel like Lynn is combining observations about Bitcoin and the Lightning Network with a very sophisticated and nuanced understanding of monetary history and monetary theory. I think that Lynn has read Nick Zabo's piece, Shelling Out, which is a a theory of monetary history and how things become money, because there seem to be elements of this understanding that store of value comes before medium of exchange, and therefore base layer Bitcoin has to come before the Lightning Network, and how essentially you need to start with Bitcoin's focus on decentralization and auditability, and that other projects that have taken different turns, their network adoption, like their metrics are not looking good. She walks through the history of Bitcoin to get to the Lightning Network. And that's why it's such a long article and frankly, so fascinating. I think that if you were to read one article to understand Bitcoin, it would be this one, even if you don't get to the Lightning Network section. Hmm. I like this as the, the new go-to link to people. That's always helpful. What she does so well is she puts what's happening with Bitcoin into historical context. And I just don't think we can say that enough. Like when you read the way Lynn has written this, it all makes so much sense. And she also pushes back on the whole idea that, well, holding Bitcoin isn't doing anything with it. What does anybody do with Bitcoin? They just buy it and they hold it. That's not using Bitcoin. That's not good for anything. It's actually a really good thing. You want money to be a store of value. And so she pushes on that a little bit. And I like that because that argument never made sense to me when people say, what are you doing? Just holding it? It's not worth anything. <laughs> and then what are you doing with silver and gold? Well, yeah, exactly. Oh, it's so useful. I have a ring made out of it. What are you it. doing with your stocks? I mean, come on. But of course, the way Lynn puts it, it always makes it seem just self-evident and obvious because <laughs> she's so good at writing about that kind of stuff. One thing that's really interesting is she takes this historical approach about what is money. And I know it's a Bitcoin pod. We're always saying, what is money? It's like a red flag that you've got a monetary kook in your friend group. If you've got some person who keeps on posting, what is money anyway? Yeah, what is it anyways, guys? And so she points out that we had physical commodity money, gold, for a long time. But this gold standard was really put under under stress by developments in communication technologies. Originally, telegraph and sort of high-speed 19th century, oh, you know, quote-unquote. It was high-speed compared to by horse or by boat. The development of the telegraph coincided with the development of modern corporate share structures and modern accounting. And I think that maybe the failure of the gold standard 
is implied to have occurred because the clearing speed of a modern ledger-based system, as in I want to make a transfer from bank to bank and the banks will use telegraph to communicate. And so this transfer can happen theoretically in a day, but moving the physical gold would take so long that actually I start to not want the gold because I want this faster clearing time. And so there's a, a conflict, a sort of a mismatch between the speed of physical settlement and the speed of paper ledger settlement. And this sort of sets the stage to our modern paper-only fiat standard, where we can clear dollars relatively quickly if we're privileged financial system participants, but we can never settle because there's no underlying asset. The dollars are backed by nothing but the goodwill and faith of the U.S. government. And she points out that you need components like Fedwire, and you need the asset, and you need all of these different things that Bitcoin already has immense scale and true trustable decentralization. And even building one of the components on their own truly decentralized is essentially impossible at this point. You know, I hadn't really thought about it. And when you slice Bitcoin up as a, a settlement network and when you consider it a ledger and you consider it a value-bearing asset, like when you slice into these different layers and then just try to think of somebody trying to build just one of those, you see how impossible that task would be. And she really illustrates that here. And there's a little aside. She discusses some competing cryptocurrencies that are based on Bitcoin, as in based on a UTXO model as opposed to Ethereum's account-based model. I think that Lynn puts Ethereum in context in other writings where she basically says Ethereum looks a lot like a stock, like a security, not so much like a commodity asset like Bitcoin. But she touches on Monero, which I find very interesting. And frankly, I don't really see a future for Monero in the sense that while Monero does privacy by default very well at this point, it's so far down the crypto rank capitalization rankings that it doesn't seem particularly impactful. And I've had pushback from my friends who are interested in Monero who say, well, if you look at the Monero, you know, whatever transaction volumes and whatnot, it really looks like there is adoption there. And I guess maybe I'm missing something because if Monero doesn't really trade on many exchanges, it might be hard to really know the price of Monero to get a sense of that price. But the price adjusted volume is so minuscule that you can't even see it on a chart with Bitcoin. So to me, Bitcoin's already pretty small. It seems that Monero's already missed the boat on network adoption. And Lynn has the point, which I can't verify, I'd like some help maybe on that, is that Monero has to indirectly audit its supply because of the privacy technology employed in Monero, ring signatures, bulletproofs. You can't actually directly know the total supply. You have to somehow indirectly prove it. And so this might change assurances around inflation bugs and that sort of thing. That is interesting. The only like devil's advocate idea I had when you said that is, I bet Monero advocates say, well, you'll adopt Monero once you realize you need it. You know, like Bitcoin. <laughs> A taste of our own medicine. Yeah. <laughs> well, why not both? Yeah, that's what I say. Why not both? There's room for both. How many base layer blockchains do we need? I don't even, I mean, I don't even really know if I have, if I even have a Monero wallet, right? That's an interesting thought. That'd be a little, that'd be a fun exercise, I suppose. Take you about 10 minutes to set up. Seth for Privacy has a nice little Dockerized Monero node. You can just spin it up on a server with 200 gigabytes of hard drive space and then take the Monero.org, whatever wallet, point it at your server. You'll be off to the races. What's interesting about Monero is, 
is that in addition to faster blocks, which means the blockchain sort of increases in size at a faster rate than Bitcoin, is Monero uses a similar address scheme to the silent payments structure. And so it's much more difficult to find your Monero transactions because the public key is tweaked. There are quote unquote no addresses in a Monero. And it means that the best way to use Monero, as far as I can tell, the only way that's private is you need to run your own node because your node has to scan every transaction for your transactions. So I don't know how Monero light clients or light wallets work, but it seems like you'd lose all the privacy by using a light client, I think. And it would be hard to run a backend server because every client that's hitting that server would need to scan every single blockchain transaction. And so Monero wallets actually have this birthday in the wallet. So you don't have to scan all the transactions before the birthday. It's a whole other world over there in Monero land. But uh, going back to Lynn's piece, she kind of makes the case that Bitcoin with Lightning Network is the magic combo, doesn't she? I mean, she seems overall super bullish on Lightning. And she kind of describes it as a freight train that once it begins, it takes forever to get moving. But once it gets rolling, it just just keeps on going. Right. Because Lynn points back against the criticism of Lightning that it's small in the sense that Lightning is not a market cap. Lightning is a pipe. The amount of Bitcoin in Lightning, which is, I think, only 5,000 Bitcoin, this is the diameter of the pipe that is the Lightning Network that can flow through the Lightning Network. It's not the amount of value that's being transacted. Whereas DeFi metrics like wrapped Bitcoin, this is a value locked. This is a static number, whereas Lightning is like a rate of transaction capacity. She also compares the Lightning Network to the early internet and how the early internet was sort of clustered around nodes, central servers that seem to route a lot of communication. And Lightning has a certain topology, but there's no single Lightning network. There are many different Lightning networks that are all connected via routing by this Lightning protocol. And it's really just a holistic look at how Bitcoin, the store of value asset with its unstoppable self-custodial base layer, leads into a layer two payment scaling solution, which takes data off chain, enables more throughput, faster clearance, but retains these anti-censorship, self-custody, trustless features of the base chain. And you couldn't have built it any other way, is her argument. Mm, I think she's right. And no company controls it. The base layer or the Lightning Network, it's open source. It's a group of participants building out a network. And the more people that are participating in the network, the more everyone benefits. And so that's why it just continues to grow. And like you said, it's a freight train. It just keeps on gaining momentum. The last section talks about tarot assets. Tarot is a new protocol from Lightning Labs that might enable the creation of stablecoin, U.S. dollar coin type assets on top of Bitcoin that could then be locked into Lightning channels. I don't know. This is something that Galoi has been looking into with their stable sats project using Bitcoin derivatives to create a, a synthetic dollar stable coin. I can see why that is attractive to many people. That worries me because if you have an issuer with a lot of assets on top of Bitcoin, this potentially gives them the ability to choose a hard fork. So if the network's going to fork, the stablecoin issuer can say, well, I'm only honoring the assets on this fork. And since they're a centralized entity, they're probably going to opt for the more centralized, the more corporate controlled, the more government controlled fork. So this is a problem that Ethereum's going to have to deal with. They're dealing with it right now. And part of me hopes that a Bitcoin doesn't need to deal with this problem, but it might just be a matter of time. I don't know. Yeah. So USDC says we're only going to we're only going to honor USDC that came on the proof of stake blockchain. They've basically just nullified all USDC that 
that's on the proof of work blockchain. And they've uh, just picked a winner. They just picked a winner because people don't want to lose all their USDC stablecoins. I don't want that situation in Bitcoin at all. Yeah, but you know, we've had stablecoins on Bitcoin before. In fact, the first stablecoin was on Bitcoin. I think it was Tether, but it was called Omnicoin at that point, I think. And it was using the Omni protocol, which was also the way I think the first NFTs were created on top of Bitcoin. So all of these innovations in the crypto space, yeah, it happened on Bitcoin first. And then Bitcoiners realized, hey, this is kind of a bad idea. Let's not do that. And Ethereum disagreed. Yeah, the rest is history. And a lot of that history is in Lynn's article. Well, a lot of the monetary history. So go check it out. We'll have a link in the show notes. That I, I agree. It's one that is probably a like top recommended link of the show. If we had one link you read this week, it would be Lynn's Lightning Network Deep Dive. And remember, you can always get in touch with the show. Send an email to BitcoinDadPod at ProtonMail.com or at BitcoinDadPod on Twitter. You can also consider joining our Matrix channel using a Matrix client like Element. And we don't have any email feedback this week. So we'll jump right into the boost. And our first boost is from Usain Bolt with 5,000 sats. Hey, thanks, Usain. Hey, guys, great podcast. You've inspired me to dump ETH, get into BTC, run my own node with Lightning, use Samurai Wallet, and now I'm looking at hardware wallets. What? <laughs> I what? love it. Wow. What a journey. Yeah. I heard you recommend the cold card. Any thoughts on BitBox 2? Seems just as secure or more so and easier for beginners. Let me know your thoughts. And then Usain helpfully links to three articles from Shift Crypto, which talk about a cold card bypass attack, mm-hmm. which is pretty interesting. So thanks for these articles and the boost in the sats. I read through them and I have to say that I think the remote multi-sig hardware wallet attack on the cold card, it seems not that remote, frankly. It's not really a remote attack. It's more like if you have a compromised computer and you're setting up a cold card multi-sig, then there was a bug where the cold card didn't verify the multi-sig wallet. So when you're setting up a multi-sig wallet, you should always be using a temporary operating system like a live boot image of Ubuntu or Tails OS, which would solve that problem. I mean, frankly, it's good that this security vulnerability was found, but it does sort of look like how hardware wallets market themselves. They basically find another hardware wallet, they compromise it, and then they say our hardware wallet is better. I don't have any personal experience with the BitBox, but it is a little cheaper than the cold card. The only thing is I'm not sure if it has a screen. Yeah, it has a little screen. I, You know, the BitBox, it looks neat. It's designed to be plugged into your computer, and it's also designed to support other cryptocurrency. Now, that for some people are features, but for me, those go in the negative category. Um, I like that cold card is 100% focused on Bitcoin because all of these different currencies are very complicated and they really need total and absolute focus to do them right and do them securely. And the other thing I like about the cold card quite a bit is it's super simple to never, ever plug it into a computer and still use it as your cold wallet. Uh, that is a good point. The BitBox is definitely designed to be plugged into a computer because it doesn't have a keypad. So you need to plug it in via a USB interface. So I think that that alone might suggest that it's less secure than the cold card because the cold card can operate in a standalone mode and never even touch a computer. You move data between the cold card and your computer using a micro SD card, which is sort of an additional step if you were to try to compromise the cold card. But I just like that peace of mind with the cold card. And again, peace of mind in the team is 100% focused on making the best Bitcoin wallet possible. And not supporting Cardano. 
But congratulations, Usain, for dumping your ETH. I hope you got it at a good price because it's down right now as we record. But honestly, Bitbox is probably better than nothing. 100%. If you want to improve your security, a hardware wallet is going to be better than no hardware wallet. So a couple things to think about. One, if you can buy your hardware wallet without revealing your home address, that is a really, really good idea because Ledger was compromised. People's emails and home addresses were leaked on the dark web. People were getting phone calls from meth addicts threatening to kidnap their family if they didn't send them crypto. I mean, all of these companies that collect personal data are going to screw up and leak that data. So when you're buying a hardware wallet, you really do not want to leak personal data. So how do you buy a hardware wallet without leaking a lot of personal data? Okay. One, if you can go to a conference, you can buy a hardware wallet in person. So buying something in person with cash is the best way or in person with a Bitcoin transaction, maybe that spends out of a Whirlpool or a CoinJoin is a great idea. Another thing is if you're going to buy a hardware wallet, do not use your email address. Use an email masking service like Simple Login, okay, to register. And if you're going to receive it, I don't know, maybe you can receive it at your work or via a at least a P.O. box. I mean, a P.O. box will not hide you from the government, but it may hide you from other entities that want to connect your mailing address and physical location. Any other ideas? No, I like all of those. I I think probably the hardest one is going to be using a different email address because if you ever need to buy from them again or something, you want, want access to your account. So just be, you know, be conscious of what you use with them. Try to get it sent. I think getting it sent to your work is a fantastic idea or somewhere like that. I think that's a really good idea because you have to plan. You have to think about this for, you're going to sit on this potentially for a decade. Well, what if, you know, just what if, what if Bitcoin's worth millions of dollars in a decade? People are going to be more motivated than ever as Bitcoin goes up in value to figure out who has it, right? (laughs) It's only going to get worse. Two more things about the cold card. All right. One, if you buy a cold card from CoinKite, you can contact them and tell them to delete your personal information. Oh, they say they do this. They have to hold it for two weeks because of some Canadian rule. But once your payment clears and after two weeks, they will delete your personal information according to what they've told me. Two, the cold card has a feature to verify random seed generation. What does this mean? The number one nightmare of a hardware wallet is that the hardware wallet manufacturer has actually created a super master seed for all their wallets. And then every wallet seed and every wallet is like a a child seed of this master seed. And then they sell hardware wallets for 10 years or 20 years. And then eventually they retire and they sweep everyone's hardware wallet and they steal everyone's Bitcoin. This is the super nightmare, terrible attack. Well, Cold Card has built tools into the Cold Card to verify that this is not happening. So you can add entropy to your Cold Card by flipping a coin like 400 times or by rolling dice 100 times. You can do this and you can verify it both in the Cold Card and using software on a live operating system. I don't know if the BitBox has this feature. I'm guessing not because if you're supporting altcoins, you might not have as many Bitcoin focused features. This is a pretty good idea. And again, I don't want the perfect to be the enemy of the Good, but it's nice to know that you have this option with cold card because with a cold card, once you do the work to set up your own wallet and generate your own entropy, you really don't have to worry about anything other than, you know, $5 wrenches. And frankly, with inflation, who can afford a wrench? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Skip Tam boosted in with a thousand sets. Thanks for helping me get started with Bitcoin, but now I'm not sure how to buy anymore. He also says hi to me. Hello, Skip Tam. Well, I think Chris is going to suggest you check out RoboSats. I have to. Um, I am uh, contractually obligated to mention it every episode if I can. No, not really. But it is how I've been buying my sats for the last few months, and I'm loving it. And then this week, 
my enthusiasm went to a whole new level when they released their Umbral app. So now there is RoboSats for Umbral, which is my self-hosted node software of choice. And when you install it, everything's all wired up to use your node as the source of truth. And the thing that is absolutely beautiful is once you have this thing loaded, you could buy a bag of sats in 15 minutes. You can sell sats super easy. But then because Umbral also has the Jam app, which is a join market app, you can buy your RoboSats, send them to the jam app have it do its join market stuff and then just sweep it to your sparrow wallet or your cold wallet or whatever you use it's such a nice setup because it's all on your node all on umbral you go to one place to buy the sats to coin join the sats and you know you could leave them on your node if you wanted to maybe you need some liquidity but you know or you store it in your wallet be your own bank foreign currency exchange and super secure vault wow it is such a neat setup i i feel like in like a decade plus of bitcoin i have never had a setup this cool because now also like all my apps use this as my node as well right i'm only using apps that can talk to my node so everything's going through my node and now robosats is as well so skip tam i really love robosats uh the only thing about it is you know you just kind of have to know how to use some of the apps you can you can move things around on chain or you can do lightning some sellers and and some buyers are willing to use different payment systems but you can generally find somebody who's you know willing to take anything cash app uh you know i've had people willing to take cash app anything that, you know, you just have to pick. They all have their options on there. So check out RoboSats. It does require the Tor browser or you need to install it on your own Umbral instance and then it'll take care of it. Crypto Kyle boosts in with 9,999 sats. What do we call a row of nines? Mm, just under 10,000? It needs a, it does need a name, right? Like it's on the edge. It's like 999 or something. The knife edge of a, of a boost. Because we didn't say 10K. I could right. have said 10K and saved some time. <laughs> Crypto Kyle asks, to date, what is the best transactional use you have put your sats to? Of course, as a savings vehicle, but I mean in exchange for goods or services. See, this is part of that mentality that just using it for savings is bad. Right. And actually, I would suggest checking out Lynn's article because Lynn talks about how monetization works and how in the early days of an asset monetizing, it really doesn't make sense to use it as money because it's good money. If you have access to U.S. dollars or weak fiat currencies with cheaper payment systems, it makes sense to use them first. Gold is valuable and good. Why would you spend gold when you could spend paper? Bitcoin, I think, has a similar relationship to dollars. And so frankly, I think that right now, the best transactional use of sats that I've found is podcasting 2.0 because it enables this cool way to support podcasts in a decentralized way and communicate with them. But actually, there's another use case for sats. Now, I think a lot of people don't have this issue, but if you need to move money between countries, hands down Bitcoin, hands down Bitcoin. Look, you could try and do a wire transfer or use a remittance service, but you're giving up full custody to them. You're going to end up paying somewhere over 1% to maybe even 5 or 10% with a remittance service. But if you use Bitcoin, you can literally pay pennies and have no loss of custody, no question marks and receive your payment in minutes or hours. I, I've never quite understood this question. I mean, I appreciate it, CryptoCloud, because it comes up a lot. We're sitting in a room where almost everything in this room was bought with Bitcoin. Literally almost every single thing in this room I bought with Bitcoin. Maybe I converted it to something else first in some cases. And in some cases, the vendor took Bitcoin directly, which was a little more common a few years ago in some cases. <clears throat> New egg. But I don't really get it because that's always been the case. Bitcoin is digital programmable money. You can convert it into a gift card. You can convert it into something else if you need to. And so, I mean, for a decade, I have been buying things with Bitcoin. I've never understood this problem. 
problem. I, it's it's never it's literally never been a problem for me. And so I I mean it's always been spendable. It's just maybe I convert to something else first. It wasn't until you know I realized I'm spending my best asset. I should be wasting my paper money, not my hard money. And then I made a you know a religious change about it. It seems to me there's a sense that having rams to spend Bitcoin legitimizes it as a project. And I would slightly change that point of view and say, I think it speaks to the development stage of Bitcoin, less its legitimacy. If you look at Lynn's article and read Nick Zabo's piece, Shelling Out, you might come to the same conclusion that we have, which is that the monetization of an asset is a process and it moves from store of value to medium of exchange to unit of account. And right now we're not even at store of value because the price is so volatile and the fact that you can spend Bitcoin, this is sort of a, it's like a cutting edge feature or something. Like Lightning Network, we don't really need a transactional layer for Bitcoin now, quote unquote, because again, there aren't a huge number of merchants who accept Bitcoin. But as Lynn points out, some people do spend Bitcoin. And there are sort of two reasons for that. One is they were early adopters and they have just a ridiculous Bitcoin net worth. So they tend to spend Bitcoin because they don't have that much paper money. Or two, you're in a hostile monetary system, like an authoritarian regime or Russia or Iran, like we just talked about Afghanistan, and you literally cannot access the fiat system that has KYC'd you and denied you service. And so therefore, Bitcoin, with its volatility and all of these current drawbacks, even though it's a little early to be using it, you're using it as money because that's what you have. So I think that if you're not seeing obvious transactional opportunities, you probably are in a first world economy where your paper fiat money is going to be easier to spend. Yeah. And think about how much work the banks have done to make spending your money as pretty much seamless and tra- and, and instant as possible, you know, with phone payments now. Now, having worked at a bank, I know on the back end, there's nothing really seamless or instant about it. They're covering for a lot of it. But today, in terms of actual end user experience, it's kind of like we already have digital money for a lot of us. And so the need is particularly there in the Western economy yet. Although for some of us, there has been reasons. I am one of those examples and I had more Bitcoin than I had paper money. And so I bought stuff with Bitcoin. CryptoCal continues. Also, this show continues to be amazing. Thank you. Y'all have excellent audio editing skills. Oh, the flattery. Please let it continue. Perhaps a guest Brett episode in the future. He has traveled all over the country and a trip to the Bitcoin dad pod might be in order. You know, an actual in-studio guest would be so fun. Yeah. Have about three of us in here going? That'd be great. Because Brett is a Jupiter Broadcasting host. He must be talking about Brent, but I accidentally called him Brett in a typo the other day, so I think he's giving me a hard time. Oh, I see. I'd be curious to get Brent on in the future after maybe the road trip, because the community sent in some boost to Linux Unplugged, and he got 50% split for a while to get a big, like, stash of sats for the trip, so he has some gas money and whatnot. And so he's going to be, you know, traveling on that stash of sats. Well, thank you so much for that boost, Crypto Kyle. You really sparked some interesting conversation. Pitar boosted in with a whopping 25,252 sats. Mega boost. He says, thank you, Jay Powell, for creating a recession to solve the problem that the Fed created by printing too much money. Truly visionary. He says, by the way, I do like the multi-topic format as is. Thank you so much, Pitar. And yes, that's kind of a theme. Not understanding that the world is a complex system, solving problems, creating more problems and adding more technology to solve the problem you just created. There's nothing we can do. The middle class is just going to have to feel some pain 
campaign while we solve this problem that nobody could have seen coming. That's all. Also, I just want to say thanks, Patar. You know, uh, Bitcoin DadPod doesn't have any advertising and hours of work get put into the production and editing of it. So those big boosts on an independent show like this, they make a big difference. And we got a under the limit boost from big government, but we're going to include it because they sent us the contact information for Gary Gensler, chair of the Securities and Exchange Commission. This is a high signal boost. <laughs> we were laughing last week because Gary in his speech was like, just reach out. We'll talk. And he says that like half a dozen times in a speech. And we're like, well, how do we reach out? And big government sent us his phone number and email. So thank you very much, big government. Look forward to Gary on the show soon, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. Captain Stacks boosted in with 2,100 sats saying, I appreciate you for exposing Ripple. And he was boosting back on your interview with Jill Williamson on the SEC versus Ripple. Well, we will be releasing another interview soon that takes a much more neutral stance on Ripple. Interesting. I know. When I heard that, I made a face and the guest noticed. Uh, uh, Kospilin boosted in with 3,690 sats, keeping it on the interview thread for a moment. He says, uh, thanks for the info in the Dr. Bitcoin pod episode. I too thought, you know, I've been around forever. All this, I already know all this, but I really had not given Craig enough attention. And I learned a lot in that Dr. Bitcoin pod interview. So if you've missed that episode, that's one to check out. It put Craig right in a whole new context for. And thanks so much, Cass. That was a really interesting interview. Mark Hunter and Arthur Van Pelt have done a lot of work tracking the Craig Wright saga. And even though Mark thinks that Craig Wright is a washed up non-entity, he points out that if Craig scores a lucky win, he could create a dangerous legal precedent. So supporting Hoddlenot in his fight against Craig Wright is really important. And if anyone has a few sats to spare, they can send it over to defendingbtc.com. We'll have a link in the show notes and this will help Hoddlenot pay the expensive legal fees to fight off a Craig Wright lawsuit. Yeah, let's hope you can really stick it to him. And our last boost uh, on my board here, Jason boosted in with 12,391 sats in response to the Dr. Bitcoin pod interview. Digging the interviews, I'd love to hear about the uh, fee and VBIPE discussion as well. By the way, 2,000 sats to read this on air. It's too cheap. Y'all's time is valuable and that's less than a dollar. <laughs> less than a dollar for airtime just seems like you guys are getting the short end of the stick. Thanks for the show. Stay motivated and keep going. I think we read this last week. So Jason got double his value there. Oh, good. Well, it's a good boost. Well, actually, I'm glad we read it again because I got a little bit of audience education from Risho in our Matrix chat. Risho contacted me and pointed out that I didn't quite understand some subtleties around SegWit and prompted me to do some more reading and studying. Essentially, what Risho points out is that SegWit is an extension block to standard Bitcoin blocks. And what this means is that an old node can take a SegWit block and they'll see traditional pre-SegWit Bitcoin transactions where all the data is in the standard place. And then they'll see SegWit transactions. But these SegWit transactions will not have any witness data. They won't have any signature data. So an old node actually reads a SegWit transaction as an anybody can spend transaction. So when you do a soft fork like SegWit, SegWit transactions are actually not safe until the majority of the network upgrades to SegWit. Well, how does this tie in to VBytes? Well, because old nodes that haven't upgraded to SegWit only see this old block 
they don't see the extension block, they actually will reject blocks where the data is over one megabyte in this sort of like traditional block data field. And SegWit adds more space with this extension block. In order to make sure that you don't have a SegWit block that accidentally fills up the old block field with too much data and causes old nodes to reject it, you have to weigh the traditional transaction data field higher than the SegWit data transaction field. And this is why SegWit transactions are cheaper. And so the four time size, you know, basically results in a situation where you can't really use SegWit transactions to create a block that's too big so that old nodes would reject it. I, I may have but butchered that, but Risho can come back and correct me. Yeah, I love those conversations where you're like, hey, let's talk more about this. And then you realize somebody in the chat room has a ton of insight. That's a great chat room, which we do have linked in the show notes if you want to check out. And remember, you can always get in contact using a podcasting 2.0 app to support an independent podcasting ecosystem. Fountain is good on Android, Castomatic on iOS, and Podverse is a cool self-hosted multi-platform alternative. I've been living the uh, Podverse lifestyle for a little bit for the last, uh, since we switched the new website live over at Jupiter Broadcasting, which also uses the Podverse player, I've decided to go all in on Podverse recently. Loving it. It's nice to be able to finish my podcast on the web. I love that. Beautiful. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded Friday, September 2nd, 2022. I've been your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here, as always, with me. Hey, Chris, thanks for joining us, everybody. See you next time.